It's a privilege to be back here with you at Advent Hope and to join you in this service this morning. When Carlos Moretta originally talked to me, he said, I'd like you to talk about a couple of possibilities. He gave me two options, one of which immediately jumped out at me. And that was the theme of practical Christian living. How it is that we put into practice in our lives the faith that we feel and experience and choose in our hearts. So I want to take you to a favorite epistle of mine in the New Testament, and that is the epistle to the Ephesians. In our staff Bible study on Tuesday mornings, we are currently studying Ephesians. Every Tuesday morning at 8.30, we gather as a pastoral staff and as an extended staff, support staff, maintenance staff. We come together and we are working our way through this magnificent epistle. This is an epistle that I think has maybe as much to say about practical Christian living as pretty much any missive you will find in the New Testament. I want to give you just a brief piece of background before we go to Ephesians chapter 4, which is where I would like us to spend our time today. I want to tell you just briefly how Paul outlines his letter. Although in the original manuscript, and certainly in the ones that we have, the manuscripts that were copied, there was no indentation, no paragraph, setting off from another paragraph, no punctuation, nothing of that sort, so it's difficult to read. Even though there wasn't that, Paul clearly divides his thought into two sections. In the chapters we have them in, Ephesians 1 to 3 form the first section, and Ephesians 4 to 6 form the second section. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul lays out what it means to belong to Christ. You have to remember that those who would have received this letter at the beginning were, were members in a very new religious community. Ephesians was probably written about A.D. 60, which means that the Christian faith as a faith was only about three decades old. That's a very young faith. The key question had been, is Jesus of Nazareth the scent of God? When people affirmed that they believed that he had indeed been sent by God, they were baptized and they became Christ followers. But there was so much left yet to learn, especially as the gospel spread outward away from the center of learning in Jerusalem. The further afield you were, the more there was to learn. And so whenever you were in a place like Ephesus, you had named the name of Christ, you had accepted him, you had learned all you could along the way. When an epistle came, when they came and knocked at your door and said, we've gotten an epistle from Paul, everyone came. There was a great deal of eagerness, no doubt, to know what he would say in the epistle, because in that way you could learn more about what it meant to be a Christ follower. So when this epistle originally came to Ephesus and the church gathered to heard it read, their hearts must have thrilled at what they heard in these first three chapters. Because in the first three chapters, Paul talks about our identity in Christ, who we are in Jesus, what it means to belong to Him. And in those chapters, we could summarize his thought by saying, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Jesus. In other words, he is saying to them, since you're His, what's His is yours. It all belongs to you. Everything that heaven can give is yours. Their hearts must have thrilled at that reality. They must have sat back and said, 
wow, is that so? Can I accept and believe that everything that is his is mine because I belong to him? It's a magnificent piece of Christian writing, those first three chapters. But when he comes to the end of those chapters, his thought and his thinking turns. It turns a corner, not away from what it means to be in Christ, but it turns to what it means to live in Christ. Now, from our identity in Christ, he turns to the matter of giving us instructions on how to live in Christ. First, he gives doctrine. Now he gives duty. First, he speaks in indicative, which means this is who you are. Now he speaks in imperative. This then is how you ought to live. You are in Christ. Now I want you to live as though you are in Christ. Now, 4 verse 1, and that piece that surrounds that is a key part of the passage or of the letter. Because in that particular place, he turns the corner to talking with them about their life in Christ. He says in 4 verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, that word is an interesting word in the original because it comes straight out of the marketplace. If you went down to the marketplace in Ephesus, a place where we have been privileged to walk in the city that has been excavated. If you went down there and you found a seller of grain and you said, I want to buy this much grain, the seller would use the ancient scales. He would put on one side of the scale the weight that represented the amount of grain you wished to buy. He would put that and immediately the scales would tip in that direction. And then he would go over and he would get the grain and he would begin to scoop it up and to fill the other side until those two sides balanced. At that point in time, it was worthy. There was a balance between the two. That's the word that Paul uses here. So that after he has talked about our identity in Christ, after he has talked about who we are in him and the magnificent blessings that he bestows, he then says, now, I want you to balance the scales by the way you live your life. Now we hear that and we say, wait a minute, Paul, how could I ever balance the scales? The grace and the mercy and the riches of God's love is so unspeakably grand that it is impossible to balance the scales. But do you know what I think Paul's thought is? I think Paul says, on this side, we have represented all of God's heart. The way you balance the scales is by, on this side, placing all of your heart. And by the grace of God, in his view, that balances if you give everything that you are. Now, our question then is, well, that's wonderful, but be more specific. And he is. In this section, second section, he then goes on to unpack in specific cases what it means to live in Christ. Practical Christian living. I want to take just one section of that. It's a section starting in verse 25 of chapter 4. But before we begin reading, begin reading, let me just tell you what Paul is doing here at this point in time. 
He is telling us that there are certain realities of our old way of life that we have to take off, that we have to leave off, and certain realities of the new life that we have to put on, that we have to take up and be willing to live. And he speaks of five of them, five of them in that context. So let's begin with verse 25. He says, Therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. First thing he says is, the thing that you have to put off is falsehood. The thing that you have to put on is truth. Now remember that in this context, he is speaking to people who are Christ followers. People who are Christians like you and me. And yet he says to them, put off falsehood. Now wait a minute, Paul. We're in the church. We don't tell lies. Even white lies. We speak the truth. What do you mean, put off falsehood? Came across some interesting, some interesting stats that one person wrote up and said there are a number of fibs that are among the most famous in America and the most commonly used. Let me read them to you. I'm quite certain nobody here has uttered these, but just to check. The check is in the mail. I'll start my diet tomorrow. Give me your number and the doctor will call you right back. (laughs) One size fits all. Yeah, right. This offer is limited to the first 100 people who call in. Leave your resume and we'll keep it on file. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Did you ever believe that? I just need five minutes of your time. Half hour later, you're still trying to extricate yourself. Or how about this one? Open wide, this won't hurt a bit. In fact, in a book called The Day America Told the Truth, it says life, lying seems to be a way of life for many people. 91% of those surveyed lie routinely about the matters they consider trivial. 36% lie about important matters. confess to lying regularly to their parents, 75% to friends, 73% to siblings, and 69% to spouses. But that's not in here, right? We're Christians. We are followers of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And yet to a group of Christians, of Christ followers... Paul says, now that you have put on Christ, now that your identity is in Him, live in Christ. And one of the ways you do that is to take off falsehood and put on truth. Do you know that one of the times we are at greatest danger of speaking falsehood is when we speak the truth? Story is told of a captain and his first mate on a ship who were deeply at odds. They had fought the entire voyage. Back and forth they went, each trying to get people to side with him. Finally, one day, the captain saw his chance. One day, the first mate was drunk. So he went to the ship's log and in very big letters wrote, First mate drunk. Underlined it, thought when we're in port, this will serve as witness against him. 
Next day, first mate came on duty, now sober, went to the log to record something and saw what was written there, and his heart sank. But he thought about it a moment, and then in letters just as large as the captain's, he wrote that day's date and wrote, Captain Sober, and underlined it. <laughs> Sometimes when we speak the truth, our intent is to deceive. So maybe those are the times when we are in danger. Reading Paul's words makes it worth our while to say, how is truth doing in my life? Paul says, if you're a follower of Christ, take off falsehood, put on truth. But he proceeds. This time we go to verse 26. In your anger, he says, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. In class, sometimes I will ask students, in your understanding of the Bible, in your understanding of the Bible, is the emotion, the emotion of anger sinful? How you understand the Bible. Almost to a person, the students answer and say, in my understanding of the Bible, the emotion of anger is not a sin. I think they're exactly right. I think when you read Scripture, the emotion of anger, the feeling of anger, is in itself not sinful. But there's a problem. I was eating Chinese food one day and cracked open the fortune cookie and took it out and read it, and it said, when skating on thin ice, your safety is in your speed. Well, that's a great deal like anger in Scripture. Paul's point is the emotion may not be sinful, but don't linger there too long. Because the longer you linger, the thinner gets the ice. And as the ice grows more thin, you become in increasing danger of falling into what will be sinful. After all, Benjamin Franklin said, what begins in anger usually ends in shame. His words are worth remembering. So what is Paul saying? One commentary, one Bible commentary from yesteryear, writing about this very passage says, don't take too literally Paul's words here, because, he said, if we do, then the person who lives in Greenland has a long time to be angry. His point is not just when the sun sets, be sure you're no longer angry. His point probably is simply saying this, keep short accounts. Keep your emotional issues current. Resolve them as quickly as possible. Don't give anger a foothold. Don't allow the roots to sink down into the soil of your heart and grow and bear fruit. So here he says, the thing that you are to put off is anger. And in its place, put on patience. Anger is one of the sins that we tend to like the most. At least that is the point of the writer Frederick Beekner. Listen to what Beekner says of the seven deadly sins, he writes, anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations yet to come, to savor to the last 
toothsome morsel. The pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, says Beekner, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. I think Beekner is exactly right. When we've been done wrong, when somebody has injured us, there is a certain righteous indignation that sets in and which often is very difficult to release. So Paul, writing to the Christian believers in Ephesus, says, if you want to put on Christ, if you want to live Him out in the way He would desire you to in the world, Release your anger. Put on patience. But Paul isn't finished yet. He goes on now to verse 28. He goes on to say, Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, how can we even take Paul seriously? It was one thing to say, take off falsehood. But now to say to a group of Christians, stop stealing. Can you imagine? What do you mean, stop stealing, Paul? You're writing to people who have accepted Jesus. And he says, nevertheless, stop stealing and start giving. Stop stealing and start giving. Have you ever held up an AMPM? Have you ever taken one of the offering plates and fled out the side door? Have you ever slipped your hand into a neighbor's wallet and removed the two twenties that were there? Most of you would say absurd. So what would Paul cause Paul to say? Stop stealing to Christians. Maybe it's because the stealing in our lives is much more subtle. It's much more careful. You couldn't really help it. You're taking the test. Your neighbor is right there. You just happen to glance and there. Oh, that's the answer. That's right. I, I, I knew that. I knew that. Just wasn't there at the moment, but I knew that. And you write it down. Paul may have something to say about that. Or when you sit down to write out that tithe check. Oh, you know, God knows my situation. I'm a student, for heaven's sakes. God knows that. He intended for me to, and you fill in the blank. And Paul says, careful, careful. You're a follower of Jesus. Focus on giving. I want to read you the words to a song. It's a song that many of you have not heard because many of you are not from Texas. It's a song entitled Chain of Love by Clay Walker. Uh, somebody I know back in the Southwest says there's only two kinds of music, country and Western. <laughs> this is of that genre. Listen to what the song says. He was driving home one evening in his beat-up Pontiac, when an old lady flagged him down, her Mercedes had a flat. He could see that she was frightened standing out there in the snow till he said, I'm here to help you, ma'am. By the way, my name is Joe. 
She said, I'm from St. Louis and I'm only passing through. I must have seen a hundred cars go by. This is awfully nice of you. Winnie changed the tire and closed her trunk and was about to drive away. She said, how much do I owe you? Here's what he had to say. You don't owe me a thing. I've been there too. Someone once helped me out just the way I'm helping you. If you really want to pay me back, here's what you do. Don't let the chain of love end with you. Well, a few miles down the road, the lady saw a small cafe. She went in to grab a bite to eat and then be on her way. But she couldn't help but notice how the waitress smiles so sweet and how she must have been eight months along and dead on her feet. And though she didn't know her story and probably never will, when the waitress went to get her change from a $100 bill, the lady slipped right out the door and on the napkin left a note. There were tears in the waitress's eyes when she read what she wrote. You don't owe me a thing. I've been there too. Someone once helped me out just the way I'm helping you. If you really want to pay me back, here's what you do. Don't let the chain of love end with you. That night when she got home from work, the waitress climbed in bed. She was thinking about the money and what the lady's note had said. As her husband lay there sleeping, she whispered soft and low, everything's going to be all right. I love you, Joe. Maybe that's what Paul was saying. Rather than being so inwardly focused that we have to fight even in the little things, allow your life to be so outwardly focused that it's focused on giving rather than getting. It's a pretty interesting thing, a pretty amazing thing, to be honest, that he would talk to Christians in such a way. Stop stealing. Start giving. But he's not done yet. We continue reading. And now he's about to get real personal. As the lady once told the preacher, now you've quit preaching and gone to meddling. So stop it. Well, that's about what Paul is going to do. Verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building others up according to their needs, so that it may benefit those who listen. He did have to go there, didn't he? to what we have to say. What he says here is, stop criticizing. Stop criticizing. Whoops. And start encouraging. Building others up according to their need. Stop criticizing. Start encouraging. Some years ago, I attended the, American, the annual national conference of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. There were several thousand therapists there, and we sat and we listened to the different speakers. One of the sessions that I attended, it wasn't a primary plenary session, but it was a decent-sized session, maybe a few more than are here today. The researcher who stood up to present his research was talking about his research into the areas of family conflict and more specifically marital conflict. He talked about the, the things that they were finding, that they were discovering in their lab, in their counseling sessions, in the couples that they were researching. 
And then he said something that stayed with me. Something that just kind of lodged itself in my mind and remains to this day. It was kind of an aside. Wasn't really part of his research. But he just stopped at one point and he said, you know, after all the research we've done, after all the couples we've studied, after all the encounters we've observed and cataloged, it strikes me that most of the problems we have as people, as couples and families, most of the problems we have, he said, are simply due to the way we talk to each other. Just that. After all this research, it really all comes down to, he said, how we talk to each other. (laughs) And Paul said, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building others up. Now you might say to me, by unwholesome, surely he's meaning don't tell any off-color stories. I'm not saying that Paul is for off-color stories, certainly not. But what I am saying, that's not his point here. By unwholesome, he is juxtaposing that to what, on the other hand, can build people up. He's saying, rather than unwholesomely tearing them down, let your focus be to wholesomely build them up. To encourage them. To give them grace. To give them an assurance that they are equal to the tasks of the day. I want to read you a brief piece from a book that was an academically titled book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, written by a scholar named Robert Fulgham. Here's what Fulgham has to say. In the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific, some villagers practice a unique form of logging. If the tree is too large to be felled with an axe, The natives cut it down by yelling at it. Can't lay my hands on the article, but I swear I read it, he says. Woodsmen with special powers creep up on a tree just at dawn and suddenly scream at it at the top of their lungs. They continue this for 30 days. The tree dies and falls over. The theory is that the hollering kills the spirit of the tree. According to the villagers, it always works. Ah, he says, those poor, naive innocents. Such quaintly charming habits of the jungle, screaming at trees indeed. How utterly primitive. Too bad they don't have the advantages of modern technology and the scientific mind. Me? I yell at my wife and yell at the telephone and the lawnmower and yell at the TV and the newspaper and my children. I've even been known to shake my fist and yell at the sky sometimes. Man next door yells at his car a lot. And this summer, I heard him yell at a stepladder for most of an afternoon. We modern, urban, educated folks yell at traffic and umpires and bills and banks and machines, especially machines. Machines and relatives get most of the yelling. Don't know what good it does. Machines and things just sit there. Even kicking doesn't always help. As for people, well... Maybe the Solomon Islanders have a point. Yelling at living things does tend to kill the spirit in them. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will break our hearts. 
And Paul said, stop criticizing. Start encouraging. I have a question for you. If you were to stop criticizing this week, if you just stopped, who would be the first to notice? Who would be the first to say, this has been a strange week. I'm not sure what's going on, but it has me a little bit worried. Who would say that? The person whose name and face just came to mind, that is the person with whom you need to pay attention to Paul. Stop criticizing. Start encouraging. We go back to Ephesians 5 and pick up verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander. Get rid of it all, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one, one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. His last one is to say, put off all malice. Put it off, put it aside, and put on kindness. Put off malice and put on kindness. When was the last time somebody was truly kind to you? Just kind. Just said a kind word, gave you a gracious gift, treated you in a generous way. When was the last time somebody was kind? I've been thinking a lot about kindness because I preached about it last week. And as I thought about it, I thought kindness is such a weak and vulnerable virtue. But it's amazing what it can at times accomplish. The psychologist and author and speaker Larry Crabb writes about his early days as a Christian. He was just a teenager at the time, but he had named the name of Christ, had, had become a member of the church, and it was very important to him. But Crabb says, I, I had a very hard time because I had a speech impediment. I, I stumped, stuttered and stammered and had a difficult time getting the words out. So I didn't want to do anything at all in front of people. Nothing, please. But he said, the church to which I belonged was a small church. And when communion time rolled around, it was the custom in that church that all of the young people in the congregation would stand and would offer a prayer. I was terrified, Crab says, terrified. I didn't know how I was ever going to get through the prayer. But my time came and I stood up and it was a total disaster. He said, I prayed and I had things so messed up because of my nervousness and my inability to get the words out that I thank God for bringing forth the Spirit from the grave and thank Jesus for allowing the Father to hang on the cross. And then I said, Amen, and was absolutely humiliated. I sat down and bowed my head and thought, I will never speak in a church again. He said, I was so humiliated. And then he said, at the end of the service, as we were leaving the, the sanctuary, one of the elders came up and grabbed me by the shoulder and turned me around. And he looked at me and he said, Larry, I want you to know that whatever you decide to do 
for the body of Christ. I am behind you 1,000%. I want to read to you what Crabb says as he reflects on the words that elder spoke to him that day. It's very short. He says, Even as I write these words today, my eyes fill with tears. Those words were life words. They had power. They reached deep into my being. Just those words. Some kind words. And yet about three decades later, with a PhD in psychology, with a couple of dozen books to his credit, and with an itinerary that takes him around the world speaking, he says, I can point back to the Genesis of all of that. It was one man, when I had botched things terribly, who simply spoke to me in a kind way and said, you have my support. So don't go past too quickly when Paul says, take off malice and put on kindness. In other words, rather than going home and laughing at the lunch table at the botched up prayer, meet that young person in the aisle. Don't let them out of the church without saying to them, you have my support. I'll do anything I can to help. Now Paul closes this particular section with a summary. It's a summary that takes place in the first two verses of chapter 5. He says, Following God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, Paul says, I want to take everything I have just said here, all of these pieces, because you may not remember them all. And I want to summarize them with one word. One word, and that word is love. It's as though Paul says, you can forget everything else I've said, everything else I've written, but if you consistently choose the way of love, you will be walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Because every one of these realities, truth and patience and giving and encouragement and kindness, all of them are merely facets of the virtue called love. Paul does flesh it out just a little bit. He says, in love, imitate God. Live your lives in a godly fashion. Now, unless I miss my guess, I will have the opportunity and I suspect you will as well. Sometime, not far removed from walking out of this auditorium to put this to the test. You will have the opportunity. I will have it with my wife, with my son, with my daughter, or most likely of all, with my dogs. Somebody will put it to the test and will say, you preached it. Can you live it? And that's what Paul wants us to know. He wants us to know who we are in Jesus, that we are His, and because we are His, all of the riches of heaven are ours. But he also wants us to know 
because of that. He gives you the power to live in a way that will make a difference in your world. So by His grace and with His mercy and in His strength, in love, imitate God. God of grace, because of Your wonderful mercy, we are able to accept that we are Your children. And because of Your powerful strength, we are able to go from this place to seek to live as your children. In Jesus' name, amen.